0: So I feel like I have begun too many sermons lately with the phrase, I don't like this parable. (laughs) Uh, I decided maybe what we've all learned this year is that Matthew's gospel is my least favorite gospel. That's just how it's kind of turned out. I've discovered it too. But here we have another parable in front of us where Jesus is again addressing the disciples and the powers that be in the church about the ever-present conversation about who is in and who is out. It's funny how these parables still resonate so clearly as the church continues to wrestle with these very conversations to this day. But as much as I dislike this parable for how it has been used for or against certain people, I am drawn to it, too, I want to understand it. I think there are a lot of ways to hear this text and maybe that's what keeps me coming back to it. I've preached this same text before and as I looked back on previous sermons this week, I don't think what I said was wrong and yet this time I see it in another new way. I also don't think this way is wrong. I have friends and clergy colleagues who are going to preach this today in a totally different way than I am. And they are also not wrong. This is the joy and total frustration about Scripture. We can look at a very familiar story from a new angle and see some new thing. I spent a lot of time this week looking from the angle of the foolish women. Now, I usually read this scripture from the angle of the wise women. I mean, they're the ones that get to have the party, right? And as an over-preparer, I have found that it is particularly satisfying for me that the over-preparers are the ones who get to go to the party, who are setting a boundary to not be used by the ones who didn't bring enough oil, by the under-preparers. And usually by the end of that sermon, I'm usually convicted about how I see myself in those wise women. It stings a little to think about the times I have not helped someone out over the fear of my own limited resources, that I didn't have enough to give. But this time I looked at the angle of the foolish women. The Greek here is better translated as imprudent or unthinking instead of foolish, but the sentiment is sort of the same. And either way, I feel these ladies so hard this week. You know, they bring enough oil for the scheduled event and then they wait and wait and wait. And the time where the groom was supposed to show up has come and gone. And while they wait well past the time they were supposed to wait, they run out of oil. Who can blame them? This is a deviation from the plan. Of course they'd run out of oil. And really, if the groom ran late, isn't it his fault? I feel so much solidarity with these so-called foolish women. They just... Ran out of oil. Well, me too. <laughs> I thought I'd have enough oil to get me to the next thing, to be honest. Through the summer, into the fall, to the election, to a vaccine. I've run out of oil as I've been waiting Somehow I've come up empty and the groom has yet to show up and I am still waiting and I don't have anything left to sustain the waiting for things to get better. Does anyone else feel like this? They've run out of oil. So they go to get more. This is the obvious choice. You run out of something, so you go to get more before the party starts, right? It seems like the right thing to do. But why? Why is going to get more oil the most important thing for them? Do they think they won't be welcome without a lit lamp? If the bridegroom is not a horrible human being, which I think we can assume is true, then uh, one can also assume they'd be let into the party even if they'd run out of oil, which again is not their fault because the bridegroom was late. Kept on having this glimmer of a thought this week, and then author Debbie Thomas helped me solidify it. This thought about me in my own empty jar of oil. She said, I get how hard it is to stick around when my light is fading and my reserves are low. I get what it's like to scramble for perfection, to insist on having my ducks in a row before I show up in front of God, Or the church, or the world. It's scary and vulnerable making to linger in the dark when my pitiful little lamp is flickering, my once robust faith is evaporating, and my measly, leaky flask is filled with nothing but doubt and pain and grief and weariness. Perhaps the lesson of this parable is don't allow your fear or your sense of inadequacy to keep you away from the party. Be willing to show up as you are, complicated, disheveled, half-lit. The groom delights in you, not your lamp. Your light doesn't have to dazzle. Remember, God created light. God is light. Your half-empty flask of oil is not the point. You are. So stay. This is an absolutely gorgeous understanding of grace in the way we look from this angle. And it felt like a deep breath for me this week. And I could end the sermon here. In fact, I really, really want to because it feels so lovely to hear that you are enough. And yet, There are other parts of this parable and the text in front of us today that cannot be ignored as much as we might want to. And for me, this week, that has really been the image of that closed door. I've been staring at that proverbial closed door all week. I don't like thinking there might be a closed door in this story. I don't like thinking someone gets left out. i don't, spent considerable time trying to do some mental gymnastics to make this more palatable. But there is a reality that I don't like, but is completely real. And that is that doors close. And not in the God closes doors and opens windows kind of way, that's not what I mean. I mean that doors close in real life, opportunities to act End. I mean, you look pretty funny canvassing to get out the vote right now, right? That door has closed. Again, author Debbie Thomas said, We experience this all the time. She said, The opportunity to mend the friendship, to forgive the debt, to break the habit, to write the check, to heal the wound, to confront the injustice, to embrace the church, to release your bitterness, it closes down. The opportunity ends. We hate this. So we tell ourselves it's not true, that there's always tomorrow, that we'll get to it, whatever it might be eventually. There's still so much time left. But what if there isn't? What if this parable is telling us to be prepared and awake and alert now to live each day as if it's all we have? What if we don't presume tomorrow belongs to us? Thomas says, do what is holy and necessary now. I love that. Do what is holy and necessary now. And this leads so beautifully into our Amos text, which I just cannot ignore because I love it so much. What is holy and necessary, Amos writes? Justice roll down like waters. And let righteousness flow like an ever-flowing stream. But before he says that, beautiful part, which we could just take and run away with, he says, alas, you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not Look upon the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals. Take away from me the noise of your harps and your songs. But let justice roll down. So what is holy and necessary? It's not what you think it is. It's not a worship service. It's not online or in-person church. It's not the music you sing to God or the offerings you make. It is justice. It is righteousness, making things right. Why do you long for the day of the Lord, Amos says? It is a closed door. The day of the Lord is not going to be what you think it is. I just love this text. It reminds us that we like to think of justice as something really good for us. We like to grab that one final verse of Amos 5 and say, sing about it and write it on signs and hold it up and ignore all the big warnings Amos gives us before it, justice might be bad for us. Because let's be honest, we're not really the ones in need of justice. We are not the oppressed. Most of the time we are the oppressor. We have a history we ignore and pretend isn't in the air that we breathe, a history of stealing and of violence and of slavery and oppression. We align with power and money and make choices that make our lives better with little thought to how it affects those who might be hurt by the very things that help us. Why do you seek the day of the Lord? You think your church service is what I want from you? You think your song is going to save you? Create just systems. Create a just world. Make things right. That is what I want. So what does it mean for those of us who are sitting here with our almost empty or totally empty lamps? I get it. I feel that flickering light in this difficult week, in this difficult month, in this difficult year. It's too much. And I keep coming back to what Debbie Thomas wrote, that we are enough, even with a flickering light. The bridegroom is coming, and we are good enough, just as we are. So I think we show up If an empty lamp, if that's what you have, you show up. Don't run all over the place trying to fill up your lamp as if that's the thing we should be focused on. Instead, we show up to the party that is already taking place and we let the bridegroom take care of our lamp. This is our chance to be love and justice in the world, to do what is holy and necessary now no matter how much oil we have in our lamp. God is waiting for you to join the party that is already in progress and cannot wait for you to get there. Amen. So I know there are, even in today's gospel, so many unknowns. You'll know neither the time or the place. Keep awake, be alert, prepare. There are so many things we don't know, so many questions. But even now, even today, we can do what is holy and necessary, even now. So we go into the world in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.